Production support for Earth Eats comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. I think um, bread is more than food, and it brings people together, and it is the staff of life. This week on our show, we talk with a miller and a farmer at Janie's Farm and Mill about pandemic flower scarcity and the value of short supply chains. And I'll share the sourdough bread baking method I've been using for years. Who knows? Maybe you'll be inspired to bake some bread. Stay with us. Renee Reed is here with the news. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate. It's great to be back. Small-scale farmers haven't qualified for loans from the Small Business Administration, or SBA, for the past 30 years. That changed last week when the SBA opened an application for an ag-specific economic injury disaster loan, including up to $10,000 that doesn't need to be repaid, and up to $150,000 in loans. The move came after bipartisan advocacy for small-scale producers from both the House and the Senate. Historically, SBA has deemed agricultural enterprises as ineligible for most SBA loans, leaving small-scale producers to apply for assistance through the Farm Service Agency, which doesn't give out aid for economic disasters. While small-scale farmers and their advocates are thrilled to be eligible for SBA aid, they're skeptical about the new program and its ability to solve the increasing problems of small-scale agricultural operations during the COVID-19 pandemic and economic fallout. John Trico, policy director with the National Family Farm Coalition, told The Counter that he's worried the program is going to run out of money. Trico also expressed concern that independent, diversified, or organic producers who sell directly into local and regional markets could be left out of relief funds. The National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition released an impact assessment in March, estimating local and regional food markets will face a total loss to the economy of more than $1 billion from March to May of this year. The CARES Act, passed by Congress earlier this year, provides $24 billion in emergency aid for farmers and ranchers, but doesn't specify how the aid will provide direct assistance to small-scale producers. Congress is expected to pass the HEROES Act this week, which includes funding for the Farm and Ranch Assistance Network and additional funding to support local farmers, farmers' markets, and other local food outlets impacted by COVID-19 market disruptions. The HEROES Act also includes support for beginning farmers and ranchers with financial, operational, and marketing advice. With supply chains still badly disrupted from the pandemic, Farmers have been forced to euthanize livestock, let crops rot in fields, and dump thousands of gallons of surplus milk each day. Meanwhile, unemployment has surged, and demand at food banks and school meal programs appears bottomless. 
On the surface, the disconnect between these two problems is maddening. But getting food waste reclaimed, processed, packaged, shipped, and delivered to those in need is no simple task. Last week, President Trump said the U.S. would start buying $3 billion in surplus dairy, meat, and produce from farmers to help staunch hunger. Back in April, the USDA said it would purchase $3 billion of ag products for the so-called Farmers to Families Food Box Program. The USDA plans to work with local distributors to package the food into boxes and deliver them to food banks and other hunger relief groups. Initial contracts will distribute food from May 15th through June 30th. Meanwhile, as reported in the New York Times, the White House has rejected some of the simplest ways to feed those in need, such as expansion of school meals and food stamp benefits or waiving work requirements needed to qualify for benefits. The USDA has issued waivers to states to give more flexibility to food assistance programs. Those moves include allowing online food stamp purchases and extending benefits to more working poor families while keeping those most in need at the same levels. Many of those waivers will expire at the end of May, despite Congress having given the department the ability to issue waivers through September. Congress rejected a plan to increase SNAP benefits by 15 percent, and on May 12th, the government announced it would appeal a court decision that blocked more stringent work requirements for food stamps. Those requirements would have taken effect last month and taken SNAP benefits away from 700,000 people. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. If you like to bake at home, whether it's cookies, banana bread, biscuits, or even just pancakes, how's your flour supply holding up? Since the coronavirus pandemic hit, flour has been difficult to come by in the grocery store. This large food supply chain is not equipped to deal with the surge in demand for small, like five, 10 pound packages of flour. They, they were supplying huge amounts to huge bakeries or facilities. and when everyone wanted to bake at home because they needed to stay at home and they needed food, they couldn't just adapt quickly to creating more small packages for the consumers. I spoke with Jill Brockman Cummings and Harold Wilkin of Janie's Farm and Janie's Mill in Ashcrum, Illinois. It's about an hour and a half due south of Chicago. We're really uh, one of the only mills of scale in, in the Midwest. Harold is the farmer, founder, and CEO. Jill is the head miller. At Janie's Farm, they grow organic grains like wheat and rye. They also grow corn and soybeans, but they're grown for food. One of my goals when I went organic was to feed people. And and Harold is one of the few farmers in the Midwest that does produce food to feed people rather than the what, what's commonly grown in this region is crops for ethanol and, and to feed animals. So to feed people grains, healthy grains, is unique in this region. The mill is located just down the road from the farm. It's the newest part of the operation. They sell whole grains to other mills in the Midwest, and for the past three years, they mill their own flour as well. I've been hearing about Janie's grains and flours from local baker Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery. Janie's uses stone mills to grind their grain. All of our flours are considered whole grain. It has been all three parts of the grain in it, the, the germ, some of the bran, and the endosperm, which is the white fluffy part. When you use a stone mill, you can't remove the germ from the flour. That's the center of the grain with the oils and the nutrients. To produce a lighter variety of whole grain flour, they sift it to remove some of the bran. The bran is the outer part of the kernel with all the fiber. 
but they never remove all of it. All those things, the bran, the germ, those bring flavor. And that's one of the reasons that people really love our flowers is they're just so much more flavorful. Since the coronavirus hit the U.S., Janie's experienced a huge shift in their sales. We were focusing on wholesale bakeries and restaurants up in the Chicago area, in in this Midwest region. And then when the coronavirus pandemic hit and we had an amazing rise in retail sales, then everything kind of got turned upside down and, and we were, well, we still are, focusing mainly on our online retail orders. For a week, we were at over 500 orders a day, whereas prior to this, it will be were on average 10 orders a day. So yeah, the increase was unbelievably steep. They've had an average increase in retail flower sales of 3,000%. So what's happening here? Why such a dramatic change? And what does it say about our food system? Jill and Harold have some thoughts on that. People are thinking more about the supply chain and how Americans get food on their tables. I think the coronavirus pandemic has brought to light that the long global food supply chain failed and that our simple supply chain like the one at Janie's Farm and Janie's Mill can withstand pandemics or other problems that might occur in our in our system. And I I think people are appreciative of that. And I think people are thinking more and more about like where their food comes from. And that's been reflected in other areas as well. I think um, a lot of people are looking at CSAs for their fruits and vegetables this summer. I think finally consumers are realizing that the food system we had was not the best. We take our soybeans and our wheat out of our business. We clean them. And then they go right away to be made into food, whether it's milling flour or it's making tofu. You know, people can eat this. They don't have to rely on going to Walmart. They don't have to have somebody from a thousand miles away mill grain so that they can bake. It's right here. And we can adjust to what they need. Janie's Mill has managed to keep up with the increased demand. They've hired new employees, they're now running both of their mills around the clock, and they purchased new packaging equipment to increase efficiency. I was wondering about the grain supply itself. Did they grow enough? We had plenty of grain. We had planned ahead so that we would have enough grain. A wise miller once told me, have at least a half of your next year's needs in grain in your bin. So in case something happened, you were able to keep customers taken care of. And that was uh, good advice. I asked Jill and Harold if there was anything else they wanted to say about the unprecedented consumer demand for flour during the pandemic. Harold thought there might be a mental health aspect to it too. A lot of people find comfort in baking. When other things are uncertain, they feel like they're doing something and some of them were sneaking loaves over and putting them on the neighbor's porch or cinnamon rolls or whatever. And the human yeah. instinct is to take care of one another. And by doing baking, they are able to give back to other people. I think um, bread is more than food and it brings people together and it is the staff of life. And I think in these uncertain times, it's been our honor and our privilege to That was Jill Brockman Cummings and Harold Wilkin of Janie's Farm and Janie's Mill. Find out more about their grains and flowers at eartheats.org.
production support comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Maybe you got your hands on some flour. What about yeast? Commercial yeast has been scarce too. The good news is you don't need commercial yeast to make bread. You can make sourdough bread with wild yeast. I learned how to make sourdough from Alex Chambers. Alex has been a producer on our show, you might remember him. He's really good at making bread. He's really good at teaching too. If you don't have an Alex Chambers in your life, there are a lot of great bread tutorials out there right now. YouTube videos, Instagram. When it comes to bread making though, there's no substitute for experience. You just gotta get in there and make some bread. If you can't handle failure, this might not be the hobby for you. You will fail. But usually the failures are edible. Butter on freshly baked bread is almost always tasty and you'll learn from those less than perfect loaves. Trying and failing is the only way to find out what works, what doesn't, what fits with your schedule and your lifestyle, and also what kind of bread you like. I prefer what's known as a lean bread, rustic and crusty. My bread has three ingredients, flour, water, and salt. Okay, four if you count the starter, and it's made from flour and water and wild yeast gathered from the environment. Here's my step-by-step. -step. We're gonna assume that you already have a starter. If you don't, not to worry, I'll post instructions for how to make one. It's not difficult, it just takes time. I start with one of the things I love most about this method. The starter is tiny, it's a tablespoon. You can keep it in your fridge without doing anything to it for about two weeks, that's what's recommended. But I can tell you that I have left mine in my fridge for months and taken it out and it's fine. So I'm gonna do that right now. And I keep it in a small jar, like a little jelly jar. It smells, it smells really yeasty, acidic, I think is a word I would use. Uh, sometimes I feel like it smells a tiny bit like glue, like Elmer's glue. Um, not so much this time. It smells pretty good. And now I'm just gonna add a tablespoon of whole wheat flour, a tablespoon of white flour, and a tablespoon of water. And then you just wanna mix it up really good. And I just leave it in the jar for this stage. And then to cover it, I have one of these like really small shower cap type things that you can put over bowls, like these old fashioned bowl covers. Looks like a little shower cap. If you don't have one of those, you can just use some saran wrap or even probably just put a towel over it to be fine. I'm gonna leave it out for a few hours. I'm gonna check on it, see how it's doing. Okay, so it's time to check on our 
Kickstarter. I'll admit it has been more than two hours, but that's fine. This is a very flexible process. I've taken off the little shower cap. It's always good to smell it. The other thing I'm doing is I'm looking at the jar and I'm seeing air bubbles on the side. And then I'm gonna take a spoon and kinda, I think you can kinda hear those air bubbles in there and that means it's alive. So it's doing its thing, it's growing. Now we officially have a starter. I basically built a starter by adding a little bit more flour and water to it, feeding it. So now I have a starter and I can make the next stage, which is called the leaven. And that requires half a cup of whole wheat flour, half a cup of white flour, and half a cup of water, plus this starter. So I've scraped all of that starter out of the jar and I'm putting it into the bowl with the water and I'm gonna add half a cup of whole wheat flour and a half a cup of white flour. Just gonna mix it up really well in a medium-sized bowl. And once again, I'm gonna cover it and we're gonna let this sit out for a few more hours. Okay, we are back with our sourdough and we're at the stage of the leaven. We want to see if it has sufficiently fermented. So the way I'm gonna test this is I'm just gonna pull back on the bottom of the dough in the bowl. If you're seeing lots of air bubbles and it's starting to look kinda loose and webby on the bottom, then that means your dough is alive, it is fermenting, and you're probably ready to move on to the next step. First thing you wanna do with this leaven is you wanna take a tablespoon of it out and you wanna put it in your starter jar and stick it back in your fridge. Now you are ready to make your dough. Take your leaven that you've let rise. Start by adding about a cup of the water to the bowl that the leaven is in. I just wanna mix that up really good until it's nice and soupy. And you're gonna mix your dry ingredients in a large bowl. You can do whatever mix you want. I like to do about five cups of white bread flour and one cup of whole grain flour. Sometimes I'll do half and half, very flexible. And I have some special flour, um, whole grain flour that I got from Muddy Fork Bakery and they got it from Janie's Mill. This is stone ground, high protein, whole grain flour. I think um, this particular whole grain flour has been sifted to extract some of the bran. So it's gonna be a little bit lighter than your typical whole grain flour and I'm excited to try it. So you got your six cups of flour, one tablespoon of salt, and then the leaven that you've mixed with the water, and then two more cups of water. You're gonna mix all that into one bowl and that is gonna be your big shaggy mass, as Alex calls it, and that's gonna be your dough. And it's not gonna look like a shapeable bread dough at this point. It's just gonna be a kind of wet, shaggy mass, and that's fine. Once it's thoroughly mixed, you're gonna cover it with some plastic wrap or a damp cloth, and we're gonna let it rise some more. You're gonna wanna set a timer. Every half hour, every 45 minutes, you're gonna wanna fold this dough which basically just means pulling up a corner and folding it over and spinning it a quarter turn, pulling it up, folding it over, spinning it a quarter turn, and doing that four times. And then 
covering it back up and leaving it and setting another timer. You want to keep doing this. You don't want to forget. So set a timer. And then when you are ready for your final proof, you'll want to dust your surface, a surface in front of you on your countertop with some flour. And then dump your dough out onto that surface. Then you want to divide your dough in half. This recipe makes two lobes. And again, you're just going to want to do some folding to shape it. Shaping is hard to explain. Press your dough out and then pull up an edge, the edge furthest away from you and fold it into your dough. And then pull up the edge closest to you, fold that into the middle of your dough. Do that with the right and the left as well. And then turn the whole thing over, kind of hold it in your hands and kind of move it around on the surface to create sort of a tension across the top of your dough. The tension is really important. It really helps with the oven spring. For the shaping, I strongly recommend that you watch people doing this. You can't learn this from a description on the radio or from a book. I've found that watching people in person or watching videos of people shaping bread is very useful. Just pick one you like and watch it over and over. Then get to your dough and try it out for yourself. And then you'll want to set that on a piece of parchment paper that is lightly dusted with flour and let it rest for 20 or 30 minutes. You're gonna to wanna to be getting your oven heated up and you'll want to heat up a Dutch oven. This is a Dutch oven process. And then shape your second loaf and set that on the parchment and make sure you get your oven heated up. You wanna preheat your oven to 500 that's as high as mine goes. If yours goes higher than that, go for it. Then you want to put Dutch oven into the oven. I just leave the lid on and then just let that preheat. Make sure you press start. Now that your shaped loaf has risen, you are ready to get it into the preheated oven. I'm using a Dutch oven, which is a cast iron pot. Uh, this one is a enamel lined and um, has a lid. And it's a really great way to bake bread. It's, it creates a miniature steam oven that allows your loaf to get a really great oven spring to really rise and get that nice crusty exterior. This recipe relies on the use of a Dutch oven. If you don't have one, it makes this method harder, but not impossible. I'll share instructions on the website for how to get steam into your oven to help with the oven spring and the crusty crust. And now I'm ready to get my loaf into the Dutch oven. The problem is the Dutch oven is very hot and it's heavy. So you need to be really careful for this step and you need to kind of set everything up. So what I do is I set up some kind of a trivet on my countertop that I can set the Dutch oven on. And then I bring my loaf over. My shaped bread loaf is now ready on the countertop next to my trivet. And I now have two very thick pot holders and I'm going to pull that Dutch oven out of the oven. 
Okay, so I'm going to now carefully lower this shaped loaf into the Dutch oven. And the next step, the final step before getting it into the oven is scoring the top of the loaf. This is honestly not necessary in the Dutch oven. It will be fine if you don't score it, but it can be a fun extra step. So you wanna take a very sharp knife or a razor blade and just quickly and decisively slash across the top of your shaped loaf, being careful not to touch the sides of the Dutch oven and not to get burnt. Once you have lowered the shaped loaf into the cast iron pot, grab your very thick pot holder and put your lid back on. Make sure you have two pot holders ready. Open your oven and get that Dutch oven back in. Once it's in the oven, reduce the heat to 450. Set your timer for 35 minutes. About halfway through, remove the lid from the Dutch oven. Once your timer goes off, remove the Dutch oven and dump the bread onto a cutting board or cooling rack. Then you wanna thump it and see if it has sort of a hollow sound. You want it to have a nice golden brown crust. You do not want a pale loaf of bread. You want it to have, you want it to have a really nice browned exterior. This is the really hard part. Leave your bread out on the counter, on the cooling rack, for about an hour before cutting into it. This is tough because it smells incredible. And it has this kind of, it has this kind of crackling sound when it first comes out that's really nice. It's very tempting, but you need to understand that the bread is still cooking. And if you cut into it at this point, it's gonna be doughy and it's gonna gum up your bread knife and it's just a mess. Really try to wait that full hour and then cut into it. What I like to do is just cut straight down the middle of the loaf. I find it easier to deal with the loaf when it's in half. Plus you get a really good look at the center of your loaf and you can see if it's got those nice air bubbles that you were hoping for and you can really inspect the crumb. As far as storage goes, leave it out on the counter until it's fully cool. After that, you're gonna to wanna to store it either in a paper bag or in a plastic bag. Once you get it in a plastic bag, you are gonna get rid of some of that crunchy crust, but it will also possibly stay fresh longer. That's my method. I hope it inspires you to bake some bread. Even if you don't try my method, I hope you'll find a recipe or a YouTuber or someone to follow to get you started. It truly is a satisfying hobby. You can find my instructions at eartheats.org. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks for listening. Stay nourished. Stay safe. Take care. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. 
Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Harold Wilkin, Jill Brockman Cummings, and everyone at Janie's Farm and Mill. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected, more at BillRushInsurance.com. Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.